Hallelujah. Come on and let's lift up the name of the Lord. Come on and let's give Him thanks. Hallelujah. You know, if you ever watch a football game, you'll see some of those players. They'll get over there on the sidelines and they'll stand on a bench and they'll start lifting their hands. They'll do like this. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You know what they're wanting? They're wanting that crowd to start cheering. I'm going to tell you, we've got a lot more to cheer about than a pigskin and a touchdown and an extra point. So what I want to do is I just want to be a fan for Jesus and say, come on, everybody, lift him up. What a strange way. What great love. What great love that he would reach down and pluck us from the ugliness of sin and call us his own. Amen. It's astounding. Yes, it is. To each and every one of you, to all of our guests, thank you for being here this morning. We are so delighted to have you. To all of you who have traveled and you're home, our friends, our guests, we welcome you. Thank you for being here. I want to take just a minute and I want to thank Nikki and I want to thank her whole team, all of the ladies and gentlemen that have helped her with this tremendous outreach, a ministry called Angel Tree. Thank you. Thank you. All of you men and women that came yesterday to deliver gifts, we thank you for that. All of you that have purchased gifts, you men and women are part of the Hope House and Celebrate Recovery. I saw your names on those. Thank you. Thank all of you. I appreciate your generosity, and I mean that from the fullness of my heart. Those of you that are here with your in-laws and your parents and your relatives, I know that you have made their day. Thank you for being here. If you have your Bibles, would you go to the book of Matthew? And if you didn't bring it, well, it's okay because you can look up on the screen. I am doing a two-year study through a Bible. It's the ESV, the English Standard Version. And so that's why you're seeing me um, really pull from it right now more than the King James. It's just because that's what I've been studying every day. I like the language, and so if you will just follow along and in your Bible, it won't be too far off. But we're going to go to Matthew chapter 1. And as you're preparing, I think I've said this humor before, but it bears repeating. And that is, if there would have been three wise women instead of three wise men, here's the difference. Here's what would have happened. Ready? Three wise women would have asked for directions. They would have arrived on time. They would have helped deliver the baby. They would have cleaned the stable. They would have made a casserole and they would have brought disposable diapers for their gifts. That's three wise women. That's what would have happened. I love all of you. Matthew chapter 1. Let's look at verse 1. Matthew 1 and 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Verse 3, And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by 
Tamar. Now for the next 13 verses, 17 verses in all, Matthew gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And if you go from Abraham to Christ, it's basically covering 2,000 years of history. If you go all the way back to Adam, from Adam to Christ is covering about 4,000 years of history. And so, believe it or not, we're going to talk about why it's important for us to know about the genealogy from Abraham to Christ. And I pray that you will receive this word from the Lord. Can you say amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for allowing us together. It's really special this time of the year to remember your birth and all that it means to us. And Father, we just want to pray now for the next few moments that you bring our hearts and our minds and our spirits together so that we can receive from your eternal word and apply it to our lives. And we give you all the thanks, the praise, the honor, and the glory. And everyone say amen. Amen. I bless you. You can be seated. How many of you in this room this morning, how many of you have either read the book or you have seen the movie, The Beauty and the Beast? Can I see your hand? Okay, so most of you. In that fairy tale, The Beauty and the Beast, it really tells the story. The underlining truth of that story is that there is a love that can break us out of the beast that we have created within ourselves from our pride and our arrogancy. That is the underlining theme of that particular story. How many of you have ever read or seen the movie Sleeping Beauty? Let me see your hand. If you've got a baby girl in your family, I know you've seen that movie, right? And the underlining theme of that particular story is that there is a noble Savior that can help us to break the curse and to destroy the curse that has come upon us. How many of you have ever seen the Chronicles of Narnia? The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. That is a powerful story and also an incredible movie. I have, I've just realized that there have been a hundred million people that have read C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't read The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, it's one of the all-time great fiction books. And most of these stories that I just talked about have a deep truth that unfolds in these stories. And we hear these types of stories and fairy tales, and believe it or not, for the most part, they really resonate with us. Because deep inside of us, we really would like to believe that these things are true. We want to believe that death should not be the end. We want to believe that we shouldn't lose our loved ones. And we want to believe that in the end, truth always triumphs over evil. 
Our hearts sense that even though these stories are not true, something in us still resonates because we think that the underlying themes of these stories should be true. Now, of course, our minds say no. In the real world, we understand that we do lose loved ones. We do understand that we endure hardships and sickness and pain. We, we also get it that there are hurricanes and devastation and destruction here upon the earth. And we also realize that good doesn't always triumph over evil. And so we come this morning to the Christmas story. And at first glance, the Christmas story kind of looks like other legends. It kind of looks like other fairy tales. Here is a story about someone that came from another world. And this individual breaks into our world and has miraculous powers. This individual can calm the storms can heal the sick. He can even raise people from the dead. And then as we keep reading in this story, we find that his enemies turn on him. And he is put to death. And it seems like that all hope is lost. But finally, he rises from the dead and he saves everyone. And we read that and we say to ourselves, oh, that's a great legend. That is a great fairy tale. But Matthew's gospel, his gospel account of the birth of Jesus does not start off with a star. It doesn't start off with shepherds. It doesn't start off with a manger. The other gospel accounts do, but not Matthew's. Matthew's gospel account starts off with the genealogy of Jesus. And his narrative of Jesus is a story that took close to 2,000 years to unfold. Now what Matthew is trying to do for us is to let us know that Christmas is not simply a truth about a birth, but it is more than just about a birth. It is about a Savior. It is about a coming Messiah. And Matthew is letting us know that through this long genealogy that God had literally planned for His Son to come at an appointed time before He even created the foundations of the world. Revelation, I believe it is, 13 and 8 says this, that He, speaking of Jesus, was the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So Matthew is really, in a sense, telling us, ladies and gentlemen, this is a story that took centuries, millenniums to unfold. That Jesus is not just a metaphor in a fairy tale. That, that He's just not a figure that is the hero in the story. 
Matthew is letting us know this is more than a fairy tale. He is saying that Jesus is the underlining reality to which all of these other fairy tales and stories point to. Jesus Christ has come from that supernatural world that we sense is there, that, that our faith tells us is there, even though our head says, no, it isn't. So I want your imagination for just a minute. Would you give it to me? The Christmas story, brothers and sisters, is really telling us that Jesus Christ punched a hole between the ideal and the real. He punched a hole between the eternal and the temporal. And He came into our world. And the Christmas story tells us there is an evil sorcerer. And His name is Satan. And He is in this world. And we are under a curse. It is the curse of sin. And there is a noble Savior who has broken the curse. And that is Jesus. And there is a love that we will never be departed from. Because the scripture says nothing can separate us from His love. Not tribulation, not persecution, not distress, not even death can separate us from His love. And it goes on to say that indeed we will fly one day. You are going to get your wings because the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet with them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Death is not going to have the final say because Jesus came to destroy the works of death and hell and the grave. The resurrection is saying that you may die temporarily, but you're going to live eternally with Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So put another way, even though fairy tales aren't actually true. We know that. The truth of Jesus means that the stories we love are not really escapism after all. There's really something in us resonating that says there is a Savior that has come to save me from the curse. There is life after death and I will live forever. There is a time that we will never grow old and get another wrinkle and never have arthritis. We'll never be crippled and we'll never be taken from the things that we love. In a sense, these stories are the supernatural realities that have come and will come true in Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, I know that it's hard for us to say to a child when we're reading a book and that child says, I wish there was a noble Savior who could save us from a dragging. I wish there was a Superman. I wish I could fly. I wish I could live forever. And it's kind of hard for us as moms and dads just to blurt out, there he is and we will. But the day, brothers and sisters, is coming. 
that we will escape death. And we will know a love that we can never lose. And we will never age. And that all comes true through Jesus Christ. It means that we will live forever. And this is going to blow your mind, but we are going to be able to communicate with angels. And we are going to have a perfect mind and a perfect body. And good is ultimately going to triumph over all evil. The truth is, brothers and sisters, that we were never meant to die. You know why death is so foreign to us? Because when Jesus created us, he created us to live forever. We were meant to live forever in a garden with Christ. The truth is we were not supposed to age. That's why we don't like aging. We don't like wrinkles because we wasn't supposed to. We wasn't supposed to lose anything. We were, we were born and placed in a garden where we had an abundance of His presence and abundance of all things. But because we believed a lie, the curse of sin came upon us. And what we are experiencing today is because of a curse. But thank God that His love came down. And because His love came down, though He were dead, yet shall He live again. So Matthew chapter 1. Let's go back to our text. It might look like a genealogy, okay? But it's also a resume. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And for the next 17 verses, from 1 to 17, Matthew gives us the account of all who is in Jesus' lineage from Abraham unto His birth. Now, in those ancient times, you've got to go back in your mind to the ancient Near East, part of the country, the culture. In those times, it was your family, it was your pedigree, it was your clan, your tribe. Those were the people that you were connected to that constituted your resume. So a genealogy is a way of saying to the world that this is who I am. This is who I am. So the purpose of a genealogical resume was to impress. The genealogy of a person was to impress the onlookers with high quality and respectability of one's roots. The genealogy is not so important today, but it was very important in Jesus' day and in His time because if people wanted to know who you are and who you were, they would go back and they would look, who is your father and who is your grandfather and who is your great-grandfather and who is your great-great-great-grandfather. Now we know from history that this is true. That Herod the Great purged many names. He was a king and Herod purged many names from his public genealogy. Because he did not want people to know that these particular people who he thought was low class was not connected to him. So history tells us that Herod the Great went in and he basically doctored up his genealogy because 
He was so insecure that when you looked at his genealogy, he wanted you to think that he only came from great men and women. Now you say, Pastor, why is this important? Because you're not going to believe that Matthew 1 and 1 is very important for you to know. And the next 17 verses are very important for you to know. Because Matthew does just the opposite of what Herod the Great did. The genealogy of Jesus is shocking. To begin with, there's five women that are mentioned. Now this is not going to strike us as unusual, but in that ancient Near East culture, it was usually a male-dominated society, and a woman was virtually never named in the genealogy. She was considered a second-class citizen. She was only there for her fertility and her beauty. But Jesus allows in his genealogy five women to be named. And almost most of the women in Jesus' resume, did you know this, were Gentiles. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. They were Canaanites, and Ruth was a Moabitist. And to the ancient Jews, those nations of the Canaanites and the Moabites were considered unclean. Did you understand, if you know just a little bit of history, that the Canaanites and the Moabites were so unclean that under the law they could not enter into the tabernacle? They could not worship in the tabernacle. They could not enter into the temple. And Matthew deliberately recalls for some readers some of the most nasty and immoral incidents in the Bible. For example, he says that Judah, this is verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now let's recall what happened to Tamar. Tamar tricked her father-in-law, this is in the Bible in the Old Testament, She tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her. This was an act, brothers and sisters, of incest. And everywhere in the Bible, incest is against the law of God. Matthew wants us to know that out of that dysfunctional family rises the Messiah. Now remember what Rahab was. This is also in your Bible, in the book of Joshua. Rahab, in verse 5 of Matthew 1, Rahab was not just a Canaanite, she was also a prostitute. Now don't let this hurt your feelings, but Jesus came from the lineage, brothers and sisters, of a prostitute. Then we look at verse 6. And it says that in Jesus' line was King David. And we think, man, finally, there's somebody here of nobility. There's, we finally got some royalty in the bloodline of Jesus. But Matthew adds, in one of the great ironic understatements of the Bible, that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's 
wife. Now, here's why this is interesting. When David was a fugitive running for his life from King Saul, a group of men went out into the desert with him and they put their lives on the line for David. They were called his mighty men. Do you know that Uriah was one of his mighty men? Do you know that Uriah was one of the men that put his life on the line for David? And yet years later, after David became king, he looked upon Uriah's wife, which was Bathsheba. He lusted after her. He wanted to take her. He wanted to sleep with her and he couldn't figure out how to do it. And so he devised a plan and gave some orders and said, look, put Uriah on the front lines. He knew that Uriah would be killed on the front lines. He was basically a murderer. And then when he murdered Uriah, he came back and he took one of his best men's wife, the man that helped protect him as his mighty man. And then he slept with her and she had a son named Solomon. And that's who Jesus Christ descended from. It was out of that dysfunctional family and out of a deeply flawed man that the Messiah came. Now here you have moral outsiders. Think about it. You've got adulterers. You have adulteresses. You've got incestuous relationships. And you've got prostitutes. And even the prominent males, which we know is Judah, who is praise, and David, who is the king, even from these two men, we've got severe moral failures. So we've got culture outsiders, we've got racial outsiders, and we've got gender outsiders. And the law of Moses excluded these people from the presence of God. And yet they're all publicly acknowledged as the ancestors of Jesus. What does that mean, Pastor? Why have you taken 20 minutes to tell us that? Here's why. First of all, it shows us that we people who are excluded by culture and excluded by the respectable society and even excluded by the law of God can be brought in to Jesus's family. What I want to get over to you that in God's eyes, it doesn't matter about your pedigree. It doesn't matter about what you have done and who you have done it with and how long you have done it. I know this is going to blow your mind, but apparently to Jesus, it doesn't even matter if you have killed someone because David did that. Even if you've done it, and I hope you haven't, but if you have, it doesn't exclude you. If you and I will repent, the grace of Jesus can cover every one of our sins. So in ancient times, there was this concept of ceremonial cleanness. You would have to go back to the Old Testament and study this out. But it was called ceremonial uncleanness, which meant that if you wanted to stay holy or respectable or good, you had to avoid contact 
with the unholy. This is why the lepers had to cry, unclean, unclean. And they were quarantined because they were considered unholy. And any respectable person would not get around them. Any respectable person would not touch the dead because the dead were considered unclean. The unholy were considered to be contagious. And so you had to stay separate. But Jesus, brothers and sisters, turns that around. And His holiness and His goodness could not be contaminated by contact with us. Rather, His holiness infects us by coming in contact with Him. This is what Isaiah 1 and 18 says. It says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. What Jesus is saying is this, that it doesn't matter where you come from. The wrong side of the tracks, poche town, dump town, ghetto town, it don't matter. It does not matter with him. He has come to free us. He has come to save us. He has come so when we get in contact with him, we don't make him unholy, but rather he makes us Holy. It's not the good people who are in and the bad people who are out. Everyone is in. I'm going to say it again. I know we religious folks, we get to looking down on our noses at other people. But I want to tell you, you don't have any right to be a snob. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to all of us just a minute. Jesus is letting all of us know that even himself came amongst dysfunction and a family that was not perfect. Jesus could have rewritten that if he would have wanted to. He would have had nothing but just perfect people in his genealogy. But he didn't want to come like that. You know why? Because he wanted to come down to us as men and women who were flawed, who were sinful, who were in debauchery, who had messed up. And he wanted us to know, I know how you feel because I came through a bunch of junk myself. And I just want you to know that I didn't come. Come on, somebody riding on a stallion, being birthed in a palace, but love came down so that I could lift you up. It's only the grace of God that any of us are here this morning. Come on, all you sweet Christians, don't get so religious that you think you got yourself here. You didn't get yourself here. He called you out of darkness. He lifted you up. Can I talk to you this morning? Do all of us understand that the car we drove here this morning is a gift from the Lord? The clothes we have on this morning is a gift from the Lord. Whatever you got, be it much or be it little in your billfold, is a gift from the Lord. Your very breath is a gift from God. God's never charged you rent to live on his earth. He's never extracted a dollar 
from you to breathe his air, but he lets you know, I came down because of my great love, and it don't matter who you are or where you came from. Come on, somebody, give God some praise. I want to keep talking to all of us. It's only what Jesus has done for us. It's not what you've done for Jesus. It's what Jesus has done for us that gives us a right to stand before God. If you gave a million dollars in the offering, I hope you did because we're going to use it for his kingdom. But listen, if you did give a million dollars and thank you in advance, that couldn't buy your ticket into heaven. It can't buy you a miracle. I want to talk about God came down to give you things money can't buy. It can't buy salvation. And it can't buy a peace of mind. And it can't buy a clean heart. And it can't buy you a ticket into heaven to stand before a holy God. His love came down so that his grace could cover all of us. So there's not one, not even the greatest human, whomever that may be walking the planet, that does not need the grace of God. And there's not one, even the worst human being, whomever that is, that cannot receive the grace of God. If there is repentance, you say, Pastor, I don't know if I have this grace. What do I need to do? You simply need to repent. What, what, what is repentance? It means repentance is simply I'm walking the wrong way, being CEO of my own life, doing my own thing. And guess what? I repent. And instead of walking away from him, I start walking to him because I realize after my best effort, it can't bring me peace of mind. It can't put comfort in my heart. It can't put a joy in my step and a song in my mouth. No, it can't. But he can. I said, but he can. And then when you repent, then you just say, God, I want to receive your best gift. It's a gift. You got to understand it's a gift. What is it a gift for? It is a gift to empower you. Just as a toaster doesn't work without being plugged in, you can't work without being plugged into the Spirit. Because your willpower only lasts about 90 days. But His power keeps on working. He said the God that keepeth the Quincy, He don't slumber and He don't sleep. And when you don't think you can do it, you call on the name of Jesus. Jesus! I need your help today. Jesus! I need your strength today. And he says he is as close as the mention of his name. Here's what I'm preaching to all of you sweet people here. Check this out. The prostitute and the king. The male and the female. The Jew and the Gentile. One race or another race. Moral or immoral. All sit down as equals. And God is not ashamed of us. This is my whole message. I want you now to look at Hebrews 2 and 11. I brought you to the very end to give you the heart of the message. Hebrews 2 and 11. For he who sanctifies. What does sanctify mean? It's a big word, but here's what it means. It means to set apart. It means to set you apart. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. 
all have one source. What is that source? That source is Jesus Christ. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Do you understand? Because of what Jesus did and because of his genealogy and because of all the dysfunction in his family, he realized that we would have dysfunction in ours. And he didn't try to set himself up above us to say, look at me. But he said, rather, I'm going to come down and I'm going to be one of you. And I'm going to be born into a lineage of ancestry, of adulterers and prostitutes and adulteresses and murderers. Just to let you know that nobody is too low to be picked up by the grace of God. <laughs> he said, guess what? I don't care where you came from. I'm not ashamed to be called your brothers. Y'all know what some of y'all going to do at Christmas? You're going to hide from Uncle Fred because Uncle Fred is freaked out. You like, you like, you like get your babies and say, don't get around Uncle Fred because he's freaky. Uh-uh. Uh, he done, he done, Uncle Fred is whacked out. So you protect your babies because everybody got somebody crazy in their family. Uh, you little religious, pious people, come on, get real. I said, everybody got crazy people in their family. You know we do. You got freaky Freddy and silly Sally and jumping Joe and you know, yeah, you do. You know what Jesus is saying? I don't care how crazy you are. I died for you. I, I'm not ashamed of you. I, I done messed up. I done messed up. But let's guess what? It don't matter how bad you messed up. I'm not ashamed to be called your brothers. I'm not ashamed of who you are. Because my grace can cover all of that. Come on, one drop of my red blood can cover all of that. Come on, somebody. Yeah, I got to close, but let me read you this verse to just leave you with this great promise. Look at Hebrews now 2 and 14. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. Let me break that down. What does that mean? It means that you and I have flesh and blood. Jesus took upon a natural man to also have flesh and blood. That through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He is letting you know that this savior, this prince that comes and rebukes the curse. That's him. He's letting you know that this Sleeping beauty and the beauty and the beast and the chronicles of Narnia that resonate with you. That you say, man, I wish that was true. It really is true. It's true in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying. Then check it out. That the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Next verse 15. And delivered all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Can't get into this, but the Jewish people, their worst fear was dying. Why? Because under the Old Testament, they didn't know about the Spirit of God in them. They didn't know about a place called heaven. 
And so they were afraid of dying, that it was going to be lifelong slavery for them. They would never get to sing. They would never get to dance. They would never get to be with their family. They would never get to enjoy another holiday. And so for them, it was lifelong slavery. But Jesus is coming and he is saying this, though they feared death and though they felt like they were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16, for surely it is not the angels that he helps. He's saying the angels don't need my help, but it is the help of the offspring of Abraham. He's letting you know I'm going all the way back to Abraham and the genealogy of Christ. Those are the people who need my help. The down and outers, the broke, the busted, and disgusted. They are the ones that grace came down to. And I delivered them from the power of death, hell, and the grave. If you're thankful for it, stand to your feet and give me praise right now. And I leave you with verse 17. I leave you with verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. That in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. You know how you can come before God this morning? You come through the mediator, which is Jesus Christ. You know why there's peace on earth and goodwill toward men? Not because there's not guns and swords, but because Jesus took the wrath of God and He took the wrath of every one of our sins and He placed them upon His shoulders so that we could have peace with God. And now, God doesn't look at you as a sinner. He looks at you as covered in His blood and saved by His grace. He's not ashamed of you. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've done. But you know what? It really doesn't matter. Because when you bring that to the cross, one drop of His blood covers it all. And when you, through repentance, come to Him and you say, God, I repent. And now, Father, I want to be filled with Your Spirit. You know what makes you holy? Listen to me. What makes you holy is not what I wore this morning. What makes me holy is His blood and His Spirit. Yes, it is. It's His blood and it is His Spirit. And now, no matter what I've done, where I've been, who I did it with or how long I did it, I can come boldly into the presence of God. And say, Lord, I need your help again. See, God is not ashamed of you. You say, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know behind closed doors what I've said and what I've looked at. and Places I've been and the things i put in my body. You know what? I'm sorry for you for that because sin destroys. It creates a lot of heartache and heartbreak. That's the bad news. But the good news is... He came down. And if you will just say, God, I need you in repentance. And God, I want your spirit to live inside of me. When that blood covers you and his grace comes upon you, 
He's no longer ashamed. And all of that has been washed away. And it's under the blood. And now you are presented to Him, listen to this, as faultless. This blows my mind and i got to quit. But here's what Calvary means. Calvary means this. That He became what you were. So you could become what He is. And He no longer sees what you've done. He sees you as righteous and as holy because of His blood. He's not ashamed of you. Now, if you're not ashamed of Him, would you just raise your hands right now? And all over this building, if you don't know Him, would you cry out in repentance? Would you ask Him right now to help you to turn? And would you ask Him, Lord, would you apply your blood? Apply your blood to my life. Come on, right where you're standing, all you got to do is in sincerity say, God, I repent. Come on, from the front to the back. He's not ashamed of you, brother. He's not ashamed of you, sister. Come on, cry out to him right now. His love came down so that you could approach him in all the richness of his grace and beauty. before I before I told it okay because we had an hour in the office the other day before we baptized him and Ronnie said I could tell you his story okay 
Ronnie was a tattoo artist. And I didn't know all this, but there is actually a tattoo magazine that circulates in America and lets you know about the latest tattoos and who is some of the best tattoos in the country. Ronnie was number two in the nation for being a tattoo artist. Y'all, this is fixing to blow your mind. Ronnie, now you told me I could tell it. Okay. Y'all, I asked Ronnie this three times because I, I couldn't wrap my brain around it. Ronnie told me, he said, Pastor, at the height of my artistry, I ran a tattoo shop. He said, I had three people working for me. He said, I brought in, this is fixing to blow your mind, Ronnie. I hope you're not lying, because if you are, I'm telling a lot of these people. <laughs> Did you not tell me at the height of your employment, $180,000 a month through that shop? And your portion of that was $90,000. You made $90,000 a month in a month doing tattoos. You sure you don't mind I tell you the story? All right. You say, Pastor, that's a lot of money. You better believe it is. What did he do with it? You sure you don't mind? Spend it on drugs and strippers. Drugs and strippers. Listen, has nothing now of that 90000 Now, did I get him up here to embarrass him? No, I sure didn't. What I got him up here for is to tell you that Jesus is not ashamed of Ronnie. And when he went down in, in baptistry in Jesus' name, he came up as part of the family of believers because his love came down. And I'm here to tell you, this is the awesome thing about the Lord. Some of you religious people that are snobs, you need to lower your head and your nose because had it not been for the grace of God, where would you and I be? I might be sleeping under a bridge, but it's only by His grace that I'm here. And guess what? When the trumpet sounds, y'all listening to me? When the trumpet sounds, I'm not going to get there any faster than what Ronnie's going to get there. Because Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to be called Ronnie's God. Because I know what it's like to come from all kinds of dysfunction, all kinds of sin and debauchery. But that's why I came down. Listen, I'm not mad at anybody, but I just want to say to all you professional Christians, you better come around and hug these Hope House men and women, because had it not been for the grace of God, where would you be? Where would you be? And listen, no, I got to get this out of my spirit. Now listen, you may say, well, pastor, I never got a tattoo and I never went with strippers and I never did drugs. Good for you. You just saved yourself a lot of hurt. But guess what? You were born in sin and shaping in iniquity. And God hates self-righteousness. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. So guess what? Sister June, come up here, Sister June, please. Come on. You got to hurry. 
Sister June, do you have any tattoos? You don't have any tattoos? Sister June, have you ever hung out with male strippers? Sister June, have you ever done drugs? No, never done it. But do you know what? You were born in sin and you were shaping in iniquity and you were headed for the same hell that Ronnie was headed for and that I was headed for. So guess what? Whether you're a Sister June or you're a Ronnie, God's grace!